the federal government has mandated that the time changes. And um, wait a minute. If uh, Connie's watching, the announcement reads, Daylight Savings Time ends. Daylight Savings Times ends on Sunday morning at midnight, December sixth. I think that's wrong. I think it's November sixth, in two weeks. So, <clears throat> I know she was just testing me to see if I paid attention to the wording of the announcements. So don't forget to turn your clock uh, back an hour, so you get an extra hour of sleep. So everybody will be nice and alert on Sunday morning. Also, a reminder of the uh, Samaritan's Purse uh, Christmas boxes uh, out in the foyer, and then also the uh, Camp Arete garage sale. Now, this is a teaching point. You know, a good pastor is like a parent. And just like in the Old Testament, parents were supposed to teach their children uh, the word when they were standing up, sitting down, going, coming, wherever they were, whenever there was a teaching opportunity. Sunday, I announced and read from the announcement that the purpose for this garage sale is to raise money for camp scholarships. Those who wish to donate items for the garage sale may do so. They're starting to collect those items, and then they will have the sale in the spring. People got that reversed. They were asking uh, Jeff when they could buy stuff or something of that nature. They got the announcement backwards. And you would not believe how many times things that I've said from the pulpit come back to me backwards. Sometimes people wonder, why do you repeat so much? Because we this happens to all of us. We hear something. I'm going to put a really good spin on this. We hear something that gets our train of thinking going. And so we run down that trail for just a second to pull that thought together. When we come back, we hear the second half of the sentence. And, you know, if we're not careful, we end up creating the uh, something like the uh, <clears throat> adultery Bible that came out in the 1700s, which left a knot, a significant knot out of one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt commit adultery. So uh, we always have to be careful uh, when we listen, and we have to be careful sometimes when we teach, because sometimes I do the opposite. I, my brain starts working down another trail, and I leave a word out. So it, we always have to be a little careful when we're uh, in studies like this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles, They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus." Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to uh, make sure that you are ready to study the word. And then uh, and in fellowship, use First John 1, 9 if necessary, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can come together to study your word this evening, to be refreshed, encouraged, strengthened by your word. Father, that your word helps us to think through all of the issues of life. It teaches us how to, uh, a framework of thought for every area of human endeavor, every area of human thought, so that we can learn to think about your creation uh, as you have created it in terms of reality, as you have described it and defined it within your word. And it's only as we live in light of that creation, in light of your word, that we live on the basis of reality. And, Father, we pray that as we study these things this evening, you'll help us to think through uh, some things that we understand, some things that we perhaps don't understand real well, some things we need to learn 
in a way that submits to the authority of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last week we began a uh, sort of a sub-series within the study of Acts. In Acts 4, at the end of the chapter, in Acts 4.32, and on into the first part of Acts 5, we saw the episode where uh, many of the believers in the church of Jerusalem uh, uh, voluntarily sold their property and gave the proceeds to the church, and so that that property came under the administration of the, uh, of the apostles in Jerusalem. And then we saw the episode of two people who sold property and gave some of it to the church, but kept the rest of it for themselves, but made it seem as if they were giving all of it to the church in order that they might be looked upon with the same degree of, of a favor and approbation as those who had given uh, everything to the church, for which they were disciplined by God, and they both uh, died immediately. God is a believer in capital punishment. So as we looked at that, recognizing that that particular passage is one of several passages in the Scripture that are used to support something called Christian socialism, or in some cases uh, communism, a communal view of, of property as the biblical view of property, and that's uh, put forth by, has been put forth by several different people over, uh, or evangelicals, let's say, in America over the last 20 or 30 years. But in, in a broader sense, within uh, Christianity, Protestant Christianity, European Protestant Christianity on up uh, from the 19th century on up into the 20th century, uh, there has been this acceptance of Christian socialism. And what's interesting is the, the some of the passages from the Gospels that are used, and we'll get into this not tonight but a little later on, but this just sort of whets your appetite. Some of those passages that are used to support this idea of, of, of a Christian socialism, uh, that which dominates much of Europe today, it's interesting. The same passages and the same interpretive framework is used to, to, you, to, to apply those passages as is used to support replacement theology because a number of those passages relate to God's plan for Israel and they're not talking about society at large. They're not ta- even talking about an economic theory per se, but they are talking specifically about certain circumstances related to Israel. But when you look at those passages within this grid, of amillennial theology that dominated Roman Catholicism, and which is much of European Christian thought uh, for over a thousand years, uh, you realize that it, it, it develops into or produces several different kinds of interpretive uh, interpretations, rather, and one of which leads to replacement theology and is the seedbed for. Uh, the anti-Semitism, Christian anti-Semitism that unfortunately characterized uh, much of European history during that time, but it also, uh, another fruit of that uh, approach to utilizing Scripture and interpreting Scripture leads to this same idea of Christian socialism. And we'll get into some of that later on, but you can't separate all these things out. So we're talk- I decided it was important to talk about economics. We have an election coming up in another year. I know none of you know anything about that, but just a re- little reminder, as if every time you turned the TV on, you weren't being reminded of it uh, er- uh, to ad nauseum. But um, the big issue is economics, so I thought we would take a little time to talk about what the Bible teaches about about economics. And we know that one of the major issues related to all of the political discussions with economics right now is the degree of control that the government should have over over the economy. And so just so you can understand a little perspective here, I thought I'd tell you the story of this rancher out in West Texas. The Texas uh, Department of Employment uh, Division of Labor Standards claimed that this small rancher was not proper, paying proper wages to his help and sent an agent out to investigate him. The government agent said, I need a list of your employees and how much you pay them. The rancher said, well, there's my hired hand who's been with me for three years. I pay him $200 a week, 
plus free room and board. Then there's that mentally challenged guy. He works about 18 hours every day and does about 90% of all the work around here. He makes about $10 a week, pays his, pays his own room and board, and I buy him a bottle of bourbon every Saturday to keep him happy. He also sleeps with my wife occasionally. Government agent said, well, that's the guy I want to talk to, the mentally challenged one. The rancher said, well, that would be me. And somehow he would be the capitalist that the Occupy Wall Street group would be marching against today because he's the landowner and the CEO and they don't understand anything about economics, but why should they? Very few other people in this country seem to understand anything about, about economics. So the Bible establishes the fact that money in it of itself is not evil. It's the love of money that's evil. We looked at this last time, 1 Timothy 6.10. The love of money, philaguria, is the root of all kinds of evil. 2 Timothy 3.2 uses the same word, that in the latter days men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. We saw in our study of Acts 4 last week that this is a factor in the early church. The problem wasn't seen as wasn't a problem of ownership of land. The problem came when Ananias and Sapphira put approbation, a sin, over over the uh, over honesty and the ownership of land. So it wasn't the ownership of land that was a problem. There's never a, uh, there's never a crit- anything critical, anything negative said in Acts about the ownership of land. In fact, the selling of the land was purely voluntary. There was no external uh, influence or pressure from the church or from any other authority. It was done from an f- uh, individual uh, free choice decision. And so the Bible never has a basis for uh, any sort of external authority, the church or government, forcing people to give up private ownership of property. In fact, the Bible puts a lot of emphasis on personal responsibility and labor. And so tonight, last time, I focused on the Bible in terms of capitalism, communism, and socialism. We'll get into those three topics and define them a little more tonight. Tonight, I'm also focusing on property responsibility and uh, and liberty. The Bible clearly teaches that we are to labor, we are to work. Those in 2 Thess 3.10, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. So how are we going to define economics? The basic word for economics comes from the Greek word oikonomia, which is also where we get a the, the Greek basis for the term dispensation. It translates a, for, a form of the word oikonomia. According to the lexicon, oikonomia means, uh, refers to a manager of a household. If you listen to the word, you can see that you can hear the similarity. Oikonomia, economy. It's, it's, it's just a, the English word economy is just a simple cognate. According to the lexicon, oikonomia refers to the position, work, responsibility or arrangement of an administration as of a house or of a property, either one's own or another. It's a spiritual dispensation, a management or, an e- e- or economy. It has to do with the management of a household, a country, an estate. It has to do with the management of those resources that are in the house, in the estate, or whatever. Now, Thomas Sowell, whom some of you know, who I think is a fairly astute uh, pundit and uh, economist, writes in his book, Basic Economics, quoting from Lionel Robbins, that economics is the study of the use of scarce resources which have alternate uses. So use of scarce resources which have alternate uses. Take, for example, time. If you spend an hour in the afternoon taking a nap, what is the value of that nap? Well, the value of that nap is relative to the value of other things you could accomplish during that hour. 
If you're like me, I'm a morning person, and sometimes I get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, work out, and I study, and by 4 or 5 in the afternoon, I'm so sluggish that uh, the value of an hour of a nap is pretty valuable because I wouldn't get anything done in that hour anyway. I'm so brain dead. So I have to recover my physical uh, energies. Okay, so the value of that scarce resource, which is your energy, is related to um, how you spend how you spend that time. So there's a there's a correlation there. So economics is a study of the use of scarce resources, food, energy, uh, whatever the resource may be, and how you could utilize alternatives uh, in place of that scarce resource. Later on, Sowell's right. Sowell writes, economics is not about the financial fate of individuals. It is about the material well-being of a society as a whole. It shows cause and effect relationships involving prices, that's value. Industry and commerce, work and pay, that relates to responsible labor. Or the international balance of trade. Now, trade has to do with the exchange of goods, which is property. All from the standpoint of how this affects the allocation of scarce resources in a way that raises or lowers the material standard of living of the population as a whole. Now, as we look at his expanded definition of Lionel Robbins' uh, short definition, we notice that both of these definitions bring in the idea of how these resources, these finite resources, are managed or administered. Whether the people in a given economy are going to be prosperous or whether they're going to be in poverty, it all depends on how those resources are managed. Now, when we think about the management of resources, this certainly implies, if we just think about that concept, that the resources have to be managed, what does that tell you? It tells you somebody has to, somebody or some group or some entity is managing how those resources are being allocated. That implies that there's someone, some group, some entity that has control or ownership over those resources, and that the implication that somebody has control over the resources implies ownership. It implies control and ownership of those, of those resources. Now, whenever you talk about property rights or ownership and you talk about determining how certain resources are allocated, you've brought in two critical elements that are talked about in any economic discussion. That's property rights and responsibility. That's fundamental to any, any discussion on economics, on management, on any sort of business. Who's responsible and who has ownership of, of the uh, resources? Now, if we develop our thinking a little more, we, we see that there are some questions that ought to come to our mind when we just think about this basic definition of the uh, use of resources. Who owns the resources in a given economy? So we, we, today we have a, people talk about a world or global economy. We also talk about the economy of different nations. We talk about the economy of the European Union, the uh, economy of Japan, the economy of the U.S. So there's different areas and arenas of, of uh, the economy. So in whatever economy we're discussing, we need to determine who owns the resources and how is ownership determined. Ownership of property under the Soviet Union was determined one way. Ownership of property in the United States is determined another way. So different economies are going to put, determine ownership in different ways. Uh, another question we should answer is who has the authority over the resources and who determines their allocation? Is that determined by a government authority thousands of miles away or is that determined by the per person uh, locally who has uh, direct ownership of property? Another 
set of questions we ought to address is the way in which ethics, that is right and wrong or justice and injustice or fairness and unfairness, relate to the allocation of resources. Often we hear politicians talk about the tax code in terms of everybody needs to pay their fair share. Well, what does that mean, fair share? How? As soon as you say that, you, you imply a set of values in order to determine what fairness is. For some, fairness is that everybody pays an equal percentage of their property, of their income, for taxes. For others, fairness is on a progressive scale so that you have less, you will pay a lower percentage. If you have more, you will pay a higher percentage. So is so for, for some, it is equitable if one person pays zero because they don't make enough, another group pays 5%, and then if you make over a certain amount defined as wealthy or rich, then you pay another amount. But who is it to determine where those lines are? What's the, what's the basis for making an evaluation to determine where poverty is and where rich is? Rich used to be several million dollars. Rich today has been lowered to a couple of hundred thousand dollars. A couple of hundred thousand dollars in, in, in 2011 dollars is probably equivalent to about twenty or twenty-five thousand dollars in nineteen sixty dollars, right? When you say roughly ten percent, not that much lower. I'm just thinking in terms of my parents bought their house for one hundred eighty thousand, yeah, maybe maybe one twentieth. Okay, so let's say you have uh, two hundred thousand today, it'd be ten thousand dollars in nineteen sixty dollars. That, that's probably a little closer. So. 10,000 if you went up to somebody in 1960 and say you've got you make $10,000 a year you're rich what do you think their response would be same response most most families make $200,000 a year today would be they would just laugh at you this is this is absurd but who has the right to make that decision who among us has the right to make a decision as to what is a, an appropriate amount of income and what is inappropriate I think Steve Jobs would have a different opinion than some people. You know, I think uh, a number of people who have worked hard, even among those who are wealthy, they have different viewpoints. So who has the moral authority and justification to determine what makes a person wealthy and what makes a person not wealthy? Who gives them that? Uh, is that a majority vote? Well, maybe the people who don't agree don't, would, wouldn't see it that way. So what, what is it that gives anyone the right to say, you've made so much money, you are classified as wealthy? Does anybody have that right? Because if they have the right to determine that, they have a right to determine a lot of other things that limit the individual's freedom. So, But whenever you talk about income, you always hear this terminology, right and wrong, justice, injustice. So ethics certainly bears something on on the whole idea of value and the allocation of resources. Another set of questions is, as we think about the idea of scarcity of resources, this implies that there's a scale of value related to the degree of scarcity. There is in, in let's say, in, um, in Minnesota, there is... Uh, um, they have a lot of water. In Arizona, they don't have a lot of water. So you have a different amount of uh, resource related to, to water. In the Sahara, they have even less than they have, uh, they have in Arizona. So who uh, is going to assign the value to the resource of water? Uh, in some places, it's less valuable. Some places, it's more valuable because of its just its its presence. In some places it's easy to get to. Some places it's harder to get to. So that is going to imply what? That brings in the whole idea of labor, how you get to the resource 
to develop the resource. So that brings in an idea of of uh, labor, and labor, of course, would add how much work is involved in getting the resource would also relate to its value. So then we have to ask the question, on what basis, then, do we assign value? Somebody told me today that they're now, they installed the first ATM machine in India that, dis, that uh, gives out diamonds. I read not long ago that there's a few that give out gold. Interesting. People don't want money. They want something that seems to have a little more value. So on what basis do we impute value to diamonds or impute value to gold or impute, impute value to, to water? Um, I back up one question, a question that has to be addressed before that is, if, is value intrinsic or is it assigned? In Minnesota, the value of water, the Minnesota's the land of a thousand lakes, in Minnesota, you have you have an overabundance of water. In Arizona, you don't, or the Sahara De- Desert, you don't. So the value assigned to water is imputed by the people who need it. There's that word imputation again. We start getting into biblical concepts. Uh, it's amazing how many terms that are used to describe salvation are related to economics, such as such as uh, the certificate of debt against us, nailed to the cross, imputation, redemption, all these are economic terms. So I'm just throwing out questions that that need to be addressed and need to be thought about as we think about this whole concept of economics and trying to develop a biblical view of economics, a biblical view of labor, money, value, all these things go into it, and uh, the Bible says a lot about those other things. So how we answer some of these questions that I have uh, brought up determine how a society prospers. If you answer these questions one way, and, and people tend to group together, as Thomas Sowell points out in another book called um, uh, Conflict of Visions, that people who answer the first set of questions one way will group together and when you go to another set of those questions, they'll, find them, they'll answer those and find themselves in the same group they were in in the first group because of the way they tend to look at life. And as Sol points out in Conflict of Vision, the most fundamental presupposition that uh, governs their answers to questions has to do with their view of the nature of man. So if the nature of man affects your view of how you answer these questions, whether man is basically good or man is basically flawed or sinful, if that's going to affect your view of uh, how you answer these questions, then that implies also a certain view of God and a certain view of ultimate reality. And when you start thinking about God and man and nature, which are all addressed in some way or another by the questions we ask related to, to the economy, we, we come back to basic, the basic elements of theology. So economics, like every other area in God's creation, is going to be impacted by how we understand God, man, and nature. Everything ultimately goes back to religious assumptions and whether people have thought about it or not is a totally different issue but philosophers and theologians through the centuries have all recognized that your view of god your view of man and your view of nature or creation impact your view of politics law and economics and so as we go through this study maybe i can make some of these things a little uh, a little more clear to you. Some general principles that I covered last time that we need to keep in mind is, first of all, the Bible is not an economics textbook, but it does tell us true things that relate to these issues of economics. It says a lot about money. It says a lot about money. It says a lot about um, values. It says a lot about property. And property is, is a crucial element in relation to an economy, as we'll see when I look at some definitions in a minute, property is integral to how you think about an economy. In the Declaration of Independence, uh, there's a statement that we were endowed by our creator. That phrase, by our creator, has been 
uh, conscientiously, I believe, dropped from the vocabulary of our president. There have been at least three occasions in the last two years when he has dropped that in his quote from the Declaration of Independence. And I believe that is intentional. The, the Declaration of Independence is we are endowed by our creator, that not by the state, but by our creator with these rights, life, liberty, and originally it was property. And if you read the uh, political and economic thinkers of the 17th and 18th centuries, that was the typical phrase that was used was life, liberty, and property because they understood that property and, and the freedom to own property and to dispose of that property as you would as you, without interference from government, was, was integral to experiencing freedom and liberty. And if you didn't have the freedom to your property, then you didn't have freedom or liberty at all. And that was one of the fundamental problems that we had with the crown as they were administering the 13 colonies and why we wanted to be, uh, to be independent. So... The Bible says a lot about property. It says a lot about value. It says a tremendous amount about money and how these things are used, and that relates also to, to values and ethics. The Mosaic Law gives us much more detailed information and a divine perspective within a government framework on labor, on the value of labor, and on financial obligations and the, um, the ethics related to labor and uh, how to treat servants and slaves and labor and the use of wealth. So at the very core of the Mosaic Law's theology of money and value is property rights in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal recognizes property, the right of property ownership, and that it is wrong for someone to abrogate illegally, or legally for that matter, property ownership and property rights. The New Testament doesn't contradict any of the things said in the Old Testament in the Mosaic Law, and the, uh, it doesn't address them in the same way because the church is the focal point, especially of the epistles, and the church isn't a national entity. It is a transnational entity, and so the focus is, is different. But the principles that are seen in, uh, in the New Testament are still consistent with those in the Old Testament. Now, as, we, as I pointed out earlier, looking at the Acts passage, uh, three observations. Number one, that nothing negative was said about ownership of property. There's nothing inherently wrong with being a property owner and disposing of that property as the property owner intends because that's part of his ownership rights. This is supported in many of the parables that Jesus tells because many of the parables relate to uh, property owner and a steward and that the property owner not the government, but the property owner has the right to set wages and determine how much he will pay for, different, for the same job. We'll look at some of those parables as we go through the study. Another thing I pointed out, the sale of the property in Acts 4 and in Acts 5 was an individual decision. It was not manipulated or forced or encouraged by the leadership because people have the right to dispose of their property as they see fit, and they can give all of it, a little of it, most of it, whatever they see fit. Not one is more right than another. That's not indicated in the text. It's all a matter of individual freedom. And that the problem occurred when wrong motives entered in. So this is the basic problem that we have with, with any economic system. Every economic system is going to be flawed at the beginning because man is flawed. He is a sinner. And that's been recognized by secular as well as uh, Christian ec economists, that man is basically flawed. So no system is going to be any better than the people who are running the system. 
Uh, on the one hand, we often hear today that the problem with uh, capitalism is that it's motivated by greed. Let's think about that just a minute. Capitalism is motivated by, by greed. Sure, there are a lot of people who want to better themselves. That may be classified as greed. There are some who just want to accumulate a lot because they put, they value possessions and they value money, and, um, and so they think that they're going to be more happy and more secure the more they have. And that would be classified as greed, and the Bible, of course, condemns greed. Well, whereas one person can be motivated by personal greed to amass great wealth, another person can be motivated by a desire for social approbation, and his greed is not for money or the things that money can buy or for property. His greed is for social approbation and recognition. And so the path that his greed takes is to try to legislate away some of the property and the wealth of the one person to redistribute it to those who don't have. That's just as much an aspect of greed as the greediest capitalist. So the communist, the socialist, the Occupy Wall Streeter out there who wants to, it wa- wants to redistribute wealth is just as greedy because he wants some of that wealth without labor. Greed doesn't have to be greed for money. It can be greed for recognition, greed for power, greed for approbation. Uh, it can, greed can relate to any number of different, uh, different objects. So often their materialism is camouflaged by, camouflaged by some sort of uh, social, uh, socially justified uh, position. But who is to say that their greed is better than the greed of the, uh, of the CEO or the property owner or the uh, owner of a particular uh, corporation. Okay, that, all of that by way of definition to give us some things to think about. Now let's look at some basic definitions. This is, uh, this is important. A lot of people don't understand definitions. We've already defined uh, economics. And now I want to look at a definition for the three basic kinds of uh, uh, economic systems we have today. These are all relatively new as they're expressed today. Uh, others are older. You have feudalism, mercantilism, and other, other different kinds of, uh, of economic systems. You had statism. And for example, if you remember when we studied uh, Genesis, and uh, they had the, um, when they had the 14 years of famine, and uh, Joseph uh, had his dream, God gave him a dream that they would have 14 years of famine, um, or they'd have seven years of plenty and seven years of famine, and during the first seven years of plenty to uh, save and to store so that they could get through the seven years, uh, seven years of famine. And by the end of the seven years of famine, the uh, economy was so bad in Egypt that people were selling their, their land to the Pharaoh, the government, in order to have the money to buy grain so that they could live. So that by the end of that 14-year period, the economy in, in Egypt was completely transformed so that the pharaoh, the government, owned all of the land and all of the means of production. And so everybody who was an Egyptian now basically worked for the government. Now, who says government doesn't create jobs? Um, so let's look at these, these definitions. First of all, capitalism. Uh, capitalism has a variety of definitions if you look in different places, but generally it's defined as an economic system where the means of production, uh, property, land, machinery, industry, are privately owned, operated for profit from investment, and in competitive markets. Now, a couple of things I want to point out here is that in capitalism, and capitalism is expressed in a number of different ways today. There's no such thing as a free, free, um, or uh, 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 basically a free market economy. Uh, that's what we would, a lot of us would strive for, but it doesn't exist and hasn't ever really existed anywhere. The closest it came was maybe in a few years after the uh, United States was founded. But ever since uh, the rise of, you know, you have central banking and the use of tariffs prior to the uh, war between the states or war of northern aggression, however you wish to look at it, um, 
uh, during that time. That, that's government control. When you have start having government control of, to produce certain economic results, you no longer have a free market. And so we really haven't had a free market in the United States uh, since prior to the uh, war between the states. There have been times when it's been freer, times when it's been more controlled by the government, but we've never had a truly free market economy. You have uh, state capitalism in in some places. Uh, you had instances of that in uh, after the breakup of the Soviet Union and just prior to its breakup. But it was it was a state controlled capitalism, so it's not a true a true free market. So there's different degrees, different forms in which uh, capitalism has. Uh, has existed. So in capitalism, you have a belief in private ownership of property. That's that's a critical element. It's operated for profit. There's a legitimacy to making profit. If you didn't have people making profit, then you wouldn't, and people who made a lot of profit, then just think how culturally impoverished we would be as a nation. The, the great museums that we have, the great libraries that we have, so many of the uh, orchestras and symphonies and operas that we have in this country that enrich us culturally are endowed by people who have made incredible amounts of money. They were not initially established with taxpayer dollars. Taxpayer dollars could have never funded them the way private dollars funded them. And that's just a historical fact. Um, so you, you, you have privately owned resources. It's operated for profit in an environment that's got true competition. Now, when the government comes in and tries to pick the winners in the competition, you start having problems. Now, this happens in a lot of different ways. You have... Uh, agricultural subsidies paid to farmers today. For, for many years since the Depression, you have farmers who are paid money not to grow rice. You have farmers who are paid money not to milk cows, not to grow corn, not to do all kinds of things because uh, it is feared that in a, if that, those restraints were taken off and they, they uh, grew rice and grew all the corn they wanted, everything like that, then it would so upset the balance of economics that uh, we couldn't survive it. So the government has to control it by paying subsidies. So a lot of your taxpayer dollars goes to people for not growing certain things. Isn't that good to know? Uh, now, I want to know who has the degree of omniscience in any government to make those kinds of decisions. I don't think the, the greatest Ph.D. at Harvard, Yale, Princeton, or anywhere else ha- has enough knowledge to make those kinds of, kinds of judgments. It's a manipulation uh, of the marketplace. So it's not a free market in, environment. Um, so the markets really aren't competitive. We've just seen some egregious examples, if you've been following the news recently, I think I started talking about this even before the news did back in September with what was going to happen with Solyndra, the uh, company out in uh, California that was making solar uh, solar panels, and that they were given uh, half a billion dollars in uh, government-guaranteed uh, loans. Your, that's basically your taxpayer dollars at work. And that was the government saying, okay, we're going to pick you as a winner. And we're going to say, instead of establishing a free market competition to see who can come up with the best options for for new forms of energy, the government's going to uh, load the dice. But they loaded them wrong. See, there's an ethical problem with the people who were running things and the business was already going in the ground. And in a genuine free market economy where, where everything is level, solar energy is not going to win. So the government's in the business of trying to pick winners. There was another news item this last week where they picked some company uh, to, uh, to, to fund almost to the same degree that was producing um, uh, electric cars. And this company's excuse was they couldn't build these cars and find a plant suitable in the U.S., so they built them in Finland. So U.S. taxpayer dollars is going to load the dice for a Finnish company. And we got a labor problem in the U.S. I mean, see... see 
And this is, just isn't the, uh, a technique used by uh, the current Democrat uh, administration. <laughs> Let me tell you, Republicans have been doing this for years as well. Maybe not to the same degree, but they've been doing the same thing because they all buy into the same basic Keynesian economic theory uh, that's dominated US, the U.S. market since the, at least the Great Depression and Roosevelt. And until you get somebody who will operate on a different way of thinking, we're never going to be able to solve the problem because the solutions always come out of the same distorted way of thinking. And so we have to understand uh, understand these distinctions. Well, the <clears throat> usually the other end of the spectrum from capitalism is communism, which is uh, technically defined as a social, political, and economic movement that aims at the establishment of a classless and stateless communist society structured upon common ownership of the means of production. So this means nobody owns any property. The government owns the property, owns the means of production, owns the factories. This destroys all competition. Well, when you destroy competition, you can, you can pick numerous laboratories to demonstrate this. You can go to the classroom. Uh, you can go to uh, any number of, of different businesses and environments wherein you can, you can evaluate uh, what happens when you remove competition from the environment. And you guarantee the results as people quit trying hard. I mean, if, if you were a, let's say you were a, a, B plus to A student. You made mostly A's, maybe an odd B here or there, and you worked hard for every one of those grades because you wanted to be at the top of your class so that you could get into grad school, so that you could get hired by the top uh, Fortune 500 companies, so that you could be a success. And there were people also in your class that made D's and C's. What if the professor came along and said, okay, we want everybody to just make an 80. That's an average grade. So for all of the points you make over 80, we're going to give those to people who make less than 80 so that at the end of the semester, everybody makes 80. Every, we, we've guaranteed the results, and everybody's equal. Well, if you think about it, most of the hyper-intellectuals that uh, promote socialism would scream and squawk at that because they never would have gotten into grad school, which would have blessed the whole country. Maybe we should have done that. Hmm. Um, Communism tries to guarantee the results. And you, you go to the Soviet Union, former Soviet Union, and I've been was over there, first time I went was in ninety-four, and the the, the the result of Marxism was such that when I first went to Mogilov in Belarus and stayed at what we <coughs> facetiously referred to as the Mogilov Hilton, which who knows what it was, but it was the big hotel in Mogilov and and I walked in, and it's, it's uh, 5 o'clock in the morning, so this, it's in January, so the sun's not coming up for three or four hours. And um, uh, you, you walk in, and there is a – the large room that's the size of this auditorium had maybe four pieces of furniture in it, nice wood floor, but maybe four or five pieces of furniture in it, not real large pieces of furniture. And there were two light bulbs on. And when I went upstairs to, uh, to, to go to my room, which was about the size of this bathroom over here, which isn't very large, uh, just room for one, not even a twin bed, and a bathtub that uh, you, no shower. I think you had a handheld thing you could use if you wanted to, but you, you, you turn the water on, wait about 20 minutes for it to get hot. And then, you you know, as it was getting warm, you'd stick the stopper in there to capture as much warmth. Remember, it's like, Five below zero outside. It's January, and um, by the time the you got this much water in the bottom of the tub, the water coming out is ice cold again. Go downstairs to the um, go downstairs to the restaurant, and uh, I've been prepared for this because John Hens had been there before, and he said he said they'll burn the eggs on the bottom and they'll be raw on the top. How do you how do you do that? They do that, and how do you communicate with them? You know, hence, those of you who know him would just look at the look at the waitress and go <laughs> two. She got the point. Bring him two two eggs, burnt on the bottom, raw on top. That's the product of capitalism. No incentive. They looked at you. The waitresses looked at you 
as if you were violating their territory by coming into the restaurant. They would almost throw the silverware at you. Why are you here? Go away. They get paid the same whether you're there or not. So why should they have to work? See, when when the government guarantees results, it destroys incentive. It destroys any kind of desire to improve because, you know, why should we do this? And you look at the cars that were over there. Oh, my goodness. Okay, now socialism comes in between. Socialism is just the, as many economists observe, including Marx, socialism is the last train stop before you get to communism. Socialism is an economic system in which the means of production are commonly owned or controlled cooperatively. The government either owns or controls the means of production. In a lot of socialist situations, government doesn't own the companies, but it, through legislation and regulation, it controls the production. And the government, through taxation, is the only entity that comes out uh, ahead. Modern socialism originated from an 18th century intellectual and working class political movement that criticized the effects of industrialization known as private property on society. Now, the definitions that I've taken for capitalism, Marxism, I mean, capitalism, communism, socialism, all came straight off of uh, Wikipedia. I didn't pull these out of some conservative economics textbook or anything like that. I just, I just went to uh, Wikipedia, pulled them off of there. But every one of these has to do with, notice, private property. What every system has to do with the ownership, saying something about the ownership of property. Now, today, we have in America uh, the Democrat Socialist of America. It's a political party. Uh, Many of you are probably unaware uh, that it exists, but it does. And this was off their website. It said, Democratic Socialists believe that both the economy and society should be run democratically, whatever that means. To meet public needs, not to make profits for a few. To achieve a uh, more just society, many structures of our government and economy must be radically transformed through greater economic and social democracy so that ordinary Americans can participate in the many decisions that affect their lives. I want to, think of, I want to show you how you think critically about a statement like that. First of all, according to their view, the only way to accomplish... That, 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 okay, they, they say in their first sentence, Democrat socialists believe that both the economy and society should be run democratically uh, to meet public needs, not to make profits for just a few. The only way to accomplish that is to, for the government or some entity to control all of the forces of the economy to guarantee the results. They have to be able to control the outcomes and the results, which means people can't really own things and And by ownership, I mean have the right to determine how those resources are going to be used for themselves or for others, not the government. Second thing is the terminology uh, there at the end where it says to meet public needs, not to make profits for a few. See, they're making a contrast there. But they're not even, first I started to write, well, they're comparing or contrasting apples and oranges. They're not the same thing. But it's not even apples and oranges because apples and oranges are both fruits. This is like comparing an apple to a planet. But see how subtle that is in the way they, they present that. We don't want, we want to meet public needs, not profits for a few. They, they, they don't even correlate. Uh, third, notice they say that to, to reach a, a greater economic and social democracy, these are terms along with social justice. If you read the history of the literature and progressivism, which have basically become code words since the late 19th century for socialism. Don't use socialism. That has a bad connotation. Use the term social justice. That, that sounds better. Everybody wants justice, and we want to have a just society. So isn't social justice a wonderful thing? It's just co- a code word for socialism. Now, in the last sentence where it says, so that ordinary Americans can participate in the many decisions that affect our lives, as if they don't. They, you do. How do you, how do you participate in decisions that affect your lives? You go to the voting booth. But in a free market economy, you do it another way, by what you choose to buy. And if, you, if everybody goes out and chooses to buy Microsoft and Apple goes out of business because it does, the people have voted. 
That doesn't meet my need. But if you've noticed in the past 10 years with the rise of as Apple has come out of the doldrums with the iPod uh, iPod and then the uh, iPhone and iPads and everything, Apple's getting more and more a greater share of the market. They make a hot, it's a more expensive product, but it doesn't break down. Uh, I've had uh, I've had Apple since '88. I, I had two different Dell computers that I had to replace everything in every year. I made sure I bought an anytime anywhere con- uh, repair contract because keyboards would go out, uh, screens would go out, motherboards would go out. Uh, I, I've had in in with three Apple computer uh, laptops over the last seven years. I've had one go in for a repair for, for a 24-hour period. I would, you know, the consumer wants quality, so he's going to buy quality. Uh, there are a lot of competitors to the iPad, but the iPad sells more than all of its competitors together. To Why? Because people vote with their money. So this is just garbage, the idea that oh, Americans really don't participate in the many decisions in their lives. If they don't, it's because they don't want to. It's not because there's a system that says you can't. You can participate. You, you vote what you buy, what you purchase. You pick up the phone, call uh, your representative, talk to them. Uh, we have participation. So it's, you know, lies mixed with a little bit of truth. Alexis de Tocqueville said that democracy and socialism have nothing in common but one word, equality. But notice a difference. While democracy seeks equality in liberty, socialism seeks equality in restraint and servitude. Because you end up, the, the, the more successful you become, the more of your, your production go, it goes to somebody else because somebody else, the government, determines what wealth, what's wealthy enough and what isn't and how this wealth should be redistributed. And there are those, uh, Frederick Bastiat, for one, who referred to this as legalized plunder in his analysis of, of economics. So, as I pointed out, the Bible isn't an economics textbook per se, but it does teach certain principles related to economics. So we're going to get into these things related to what does the Bible say about Responsibility. That's at the very core, personal responsibility. What does the Bible say about labor? What does the Bible say about property? So that we can understand and construct a biblical, biblically-based theory of economics. Now, the Bible, as I said, is not an economics text- textbook, but it tells us, gives us enough in- information to where we can stake out, like, like you're staking a plot of land. You can stake out a boundary with the different biblical principles related to property, value, responsibility. And once you stake out and define that territory, then anything within that boundary fits a biblical view of economics. I'm going to give you a little hint. It's not going to be identical with laissez-faire capitalism or a free market system or Austrian or Chicago schools of economics or Keynesian economics. It's, It's biblical. Biblical economics has a lot of elements that support private ownership of property, individual responsibility, labor. It's not going to be the same as modern systems. It certainly is not going to conform to socialism or to, or to um, communism. But we have to look at these things because you will run into more and more people, even as Christians, who say Christianity supports, it's, it's loving to give to others. It is, but it's not loving for somebody to make me give to others. That's the difference. That's the difference. Is it the individual's responsibility to take care of the poor, or is it the government's responsibility to take care of the poor with my money? So we have to look at what the Scriptures say. So we'll come back. We'll begin next time looking at the divine institutions and how the understanding the first divine institution lays a foundation so that we can think about these things, especially as we hear, uh, we're going to talk some about taxes in terms of the Mosaic Law. It says a lot to do under the concept of ties. Right now, I think today, uh, Rick Perry came out with a flat tax proposal. We've got a flat tax proposal. We've got the 999 plan. In German, that means no, no, no. We don't know which it is. Uh, <laughs> 
So we'll, we'll take a look at that and uh, some of these other ideas to stack them up against biblical categories of setic, justice, righteousness. Okay, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at your word, to think through a topic addressed in many ways by the scriptures that we may come to a better understanding of, of responsibility, labor, money, how the scriptures teach us that this should be used and who has responsibility for it, that we may then take that knowledge and apply it in wisdom to decisions we have to make in terms of our own personal use of our resources as well as decisions we must make in the voting booth uh, in relation to government policy. And we pray that you will help us to think precisely and clearly about these things in Christ's name. Amen.